Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This summer, we are back in the book of Psalms. John Calvin rather famously wrote that the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Psalms sing high joys for salvation and the beauty of this world, and yet meet us in the low places as we cry out for justice and weep over the sorrowful state of this world. All of life, absolutely all of it, is invited to be laid before our Lord in the Psalms, these prayers and songs to God. So we'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon, and God bless. Before you, and we ask that you'd speak to us from your holy word. Lord, uh, we've come into this place this morning, uh, some of us from a place of, of rest. Maybe the summer's been more restful, or for some of us, uh, chaos, chaotic times. Some of us with lots of questions about faith and feels like most of life is full of doubts. And for some of us, a real joy in, in your, your a life with you and the gift of the Spirit and the reality of God for us. Lord, would you meet us wherever we are coming from at this time and in this place and uh, would you speak to us, Lord, that we might think again and again of how great your faithfulness is, how your mercy is new every morning. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We are looking at Psalm 60. Psalm 60. Uh, we have been in the Psalms together for a while in the summers. We're doing these, this summer series in the Psalms that we've been in actually for nine summers now. We're finally to Psalm 60. And I'll say this, Psalm 60 is a little bit of an odd psalm. Um, the heading that we're given in the Hebrew is actually the, the longest heading that we have of any psalm, a longest sort of context with sort of musical notes of the tune and also the historical setting. In the Hebrew, actually, there are two verses they, they comprise verses 1 and 2 of the Hebrew text when, it, when you look at a Hebrew Bible. And the heading uh, speaks of victory. But the psalm does not. Not really. Uh, it kind of puts out, puts out this despairing cry for God to show up and to help and do something, God. That kind of thing. I'm going to jump in and into that psalm and hopefully we'll make sense of that uh, friction that you might initially see there. But I want to tell you a story first that I read this week when I was um, studying for this psalm. It wasn't in a commentary, but it's, it fits. So this ship goes down in this storm and um, there's only one man that survives and he finds his way to an island. It's in the South Pacific, in the South Pacific. And uh, he's got a few things in his pockets, and you know, there's there's like some debris from the shipwreck that comes a, 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 on this island, and and he's able to build this little hut on the island near the beach, and uh, a place where he can find shelter and where, where he can rest. But this is what he does. 
Every morning he wakes up and he spends the whole morning just scanning the horizon. Because he really has one goal in mind, right? And that is, I need to find a ship because I need to get off this island. So what does he do all morning, all afternoon? He's just scanning the horizon. Is there a ship possibly that I could flag down and get their attention? So what he does is he spends pretty much his whole day doing this. In the evenings, right at sort of dusk, when it's just getting dark, but it's also light enough that he can see, that's when he goes out and he forages for food, and he finds his food, and he comes back, and he makes it, and, and went up. So that's what he does just day in, day out. And um, one evening, as he's finishing up his foraging, he returns, it's, it's been storming, he returns and his little hut is just in flames. Lightning had struck his hut. And um, when he was out finding food, and he is just utterly in despair now. The place that he had spent so much time in, in, uh, building for safety is now destroyed. Um, all of his tools that were inside of it that he had with him, everything is lost. And um, this is what he does. And actually, I think that you, you, if you can put yourself in his shoes, you would probably do the same thing. What he does is he just goes to the beach and he just sits down and he just contemplates, am I done with it? Should I just go ahead and die right now? I've lost everything and tears are welling up in his eyes and flowing down his cheeks. And he eventually just falls down in the sand and he just falls asleep for a while. He's just kind of given up. That's sort of like what David says in Psalm 13. His bed has become his, uh, his pillow of tears, right? And I share that in part because, well, there's something that resonates with this psalm, but there's something that resonates with the Bible, and that's this. The Bible never really shies away from like, just the really hard times of life. Experiences like that, when our hope actually really does seem lost. When you really wonder, is there any way, actually, that we can continue on with what's happening? Um, when bad thing seems to give way to another bad thing, right? You jump out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? That kind of situation. When, when you get your, your rent bill and then all of a sudden you find out that you haven't paid electricity for a little while and you're like, I don't, I, this, this isn't going to happen. I can't do this. When, maybe when your COVID turns into sort of a long COVID kind of experience. Or when you lose your job and then you go and your girlfriend dumps you. You know, it just like builds up and it builds up, you know, these kinds of experiences. Um, when you've been kicked down when you're up and then you actually get kicked down when you're already down, you're like, hey, I'm already down. Stop kicking me. Some of you know these kinds of experiences very well. Um, Proverbs 13, 12 is a really lovely little proverb, and it begins this way. It speaks to our experiences in this way. It says this, hope Deferred makes the heart sick. And again, I, I would guess a lot of us just know that is such a true statement. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We also know, though, sometimes um, hope deferred doesn't just make the heart sick, but it actually leads to a place of total despair. It's the experience of the man on the beach welling up with tears and just deciding, I'm just going to fall asleep and hope I don't wake up. Um, our hope deferred can be aggravated. We hear in Holy Scripture that there's going to be a day, 
I love that song we used to sing sometimes. We sing sometimes in Advent. There is going to be a day when the mountains are going to be brought down and the low places are going to be brought up, and there's going to be a time when there's no more crying or tears or pain anymore. But then we wonder, why are our bodies deteriorating so much? Why would God make a world where your physical fitness peaks at 25? I've said that in some sermons, and I thought when I was writing this, am I misquoting that? So I just Googled, like, what's the height of physical fitness? It's 25. That stinks. Um, Ecclesiastes 2 tells us this. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Um, Days can be full of sorrow that lead to nights. Full of sleepless sorrow. Um, The sadness that we experience of our favorite team losing the World Series is real. Can I get an amen? It's real. It's a real sadness, right, Will? I mean, some of us know that sadness. Or, you know, our favorite football team not making it to the finals. You know, I mean, that is like legit. The reality is that as we grow and as we experience more and more life, we actually find that that seems to be the norm. The sadness that we experience at that stage as a child, we actually just live into this reality that, oh my goodness, everything is so messed up. Everything is so broken. And, um, and why are some of our deepest heartaches related uh, to the affliction that is caused by those who we love? Do you know how that seems to be the, the, the way of the world? I mean, abandonment of parents or the infidelity of a spouse Relational distance of children. Siblings who only seem to be in it for themselves. Friends who are once close who won't even return your phone calls. Um, And in all of this world that we're living in, that we experience these kinds of things, what the Holy Scriptures tell us is that not a hair falls from our head or not a sparrow falls out of the sky without it being the will of the Lord, the will of our Father, We're told in Matthew chapter 10, we're told that there. And I think actually wonderfully we're told that in the context, that same chapter, of being told not to fear. And we're told that right after that we are told that brother will deliver brother to death. That father, child, and the children will rise up against parents. The pain and sorrow and travail of this life is deeply hard, sometimes unbearably hard. Um, and yet, it's in the midst of this situation that this psalm t- still tells us that we can have confidence in the Lord. It's in the midst of a situation where it seems like you're getting kicked when you're already down that this psalm tells us we can still have confidence in the Lord. In some ways, this is a very simple, simple sermon for you. I want to show you just how bad it is in this psalm. And then I want to show you how David remains confident in the Lord and also how he shows up. Listen first to verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to take them um, individually. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You've been angry. Oh, restore us. 
You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that makes us made us stagger. I want to take these images of verses 3, 2, and 1 in that order, actually. 3, 2, 1. And I want you to see just how bad the situation is. First, the image of drunkenness, okay? Um, the idea here is having been been dealt a blow so bad that you can barely walk. You've been hit so hard that you just can't really make it through the next step. You can barely stand. You're so tired because of the sleepless nights that you've experienced through anxiety and the worry of your children or the situation that you find at work or just this friend that said something to you that hit so hard that you can't sleep and your eyes, like they're blurry. It's such a bad situation. You can't talk well, you can't see well, you can't walk well. Just nothing is going right. It seems as though the world, the judgment has happened to you. There's something that's happened that's been so bad that you just literally are not able to sort of do life as though you're drunk. Um, the Bible actually refers to this quite a bit. And it specifically refers to actually God's judgment in these kinds of ways. Psalm 75 says this, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Uh, Jeremiah says this, You shall speak to them in this word, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every jar shall be filled with wine, and they will say to you, Do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill, it with, fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will dash them one against another. They can't stand. They're running into each other because God's judgment has been poured out upon them in, a, in an image of drunkenness. Isaiah uses this a number of times, but in Isaiah 51, verse 17, he says this, Wake yourselves, wake yourself, stand, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. That's a bad image in the Bible. You're not supposed to look at that and think like, oh, that sounds like a fun party. You're supposed to see that leads to destruction. You can't see right and think right and talk right and you run into each other and you cause destruction. But that actually is preceded in verse 2 by a much worse scenario. Listen, verse 2. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open, repair its breaches, for it totters. He's saying the situation is so bad it needs to be compared to an earthquake. An earthquake that rips the earth open, it, it, it shakes and things fall down, and there's just destruction in its path. Um, probably a lot of you saw pictures just this February of the earthquake that happened in Turkey. It was just horrendously bad, horribly destructive. Um, maybe you remember the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. The Haitian government at that time estimated there were 100 to 160,000, that was that, that range of a number, but 100 to 160,000 Haitians who died because of that earthquake. Um, my own mother soon afterwards went down to help with the situation. One of my dear friends, Wilson, who I worked with, he's a structural engineer, went down and he saw how few of their buildings actually had rebar that, was, that had the little bumps on it, and so the, the, the buildings would just fall off and slide right off the rebar. 
Um, some of you know maybe that my own wife went down to help in medical PT work for months afterwards, a little while after that happened. But the point is this absolute utter destruction. And this is the image that David is saying is happening. Utter destruction. Finally, verse 3 in some ways I think we know is what's really, really the worst. And that's just rejection. Rejection, oh God, you've rejected us, broken our defenses, you've been angry, oh restore us. And this is where you actually need to hear the historical context for this psalm, Psalm 60. I mentioned that it's the longest heading, and it, it mentions a little bit of the, the tune and whatnot that you're supposed to sing this to, that we don't know what it sounded like. And it also mentioned why and what context David was writing this psalm. It says this, when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Y'all remember that story? I didn't think so. <laughs> I didn't think so. Uh, it is, this is not one of the most well-known stories of David, and yet this is the story where, uh, out of which David wrote this psalm. Um, here's what's going on. David has more or less conquered most of what was, would be Israel. And it's actually, there, he's at, at war against, I should read this so I get it right, Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah over near the Euphrates River, which is a good deal to the east, okay? So David has the Israeli army with him over, away from Jerusalem a good deal at that point. And these guys who are known as the Edomites, uh, not related to like the Dutch cheese, it's spelt differently. Uh, the Edomites decide, oh, we're going to take advantage of David being over there fighting a battle and we're going to go take over Jerusalem, the fortified city, the city of the Lord. We can do it. Let's go. And uh, so they stage this uprising, and David dispatches Joab, who's one of the, the leaders, the big leaders in, un, under David, one of his main military leaders. And he goes back and he takes care of the Edomites who are invading uh, Jerusalem and, and the land around Jerusalem. And let me say this. This is probably why, if you noticed, actually, I really wanted you to see this. Um, because in first, it's first Samuel, right, that you heard from the Old Testament reading? First Chronicles, sorry, First Chronicles 18, it's in Second Samuel that this is mentioned. But it says that there are 18,000 Edomites that fell in the Valley of Salt. And this, here it says 12,000. Here's the thing, actually, it may be that there was actually a scribal error here. That's possible. But there's actually a historical situation here because this, this, this text here mentions Joab and this text mentions another. So some people think that David would have sent Joab, his main leader, to go deal with it, and then David came with the rest of the army to, to sort of finish up what was going on. Does that kind of make sense? I kind of wanted to share that, though, with you to see that there's times in the Bible where it's not really easy to go, wait, there's 12,000 mentioned here and 18,000 mentioned. What's going on? And we don't really know, but, you know, there's, there are explanations that can, can make sense of it. Okay, that is not my main point. Here's my main point. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Who's Esau. Esau is the brother of Jacob. Who's Jacob? He's the son of Isaac. Who's Isaac? He's the son of Abraham. This is kindred. This is as family as family gets back then. 
I mean, the Israelites descend from one son, the Edomites descend from another. And as if you're supposed to really understand that these really are relatives, actually, the Bible mentions it quite a few times. Um, Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, it says this, Do not despise an Edomite, for an Edomite are relatives to you. That's your family. Um, Numbers 20, uh, this is Moses writing to the king of the Edomites at the time. He says, this is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardship that have come on us. This is what your brother Israel says. This is kindred. This is family. The Edomites are taking advantage of the Israelites when they're over there in battle. This is your brother kicking you when you're down. This is rejection by blood. David really is in the middle of the thick of things and he's getting it handed to him by his own relatives. And here's what's kind of wild in all of this. The text seems to tell us that the Lord is somehow behind this. God seems to be uh, giving David both a great deal of success in his battles, yet he's being kept humble. In this we hear David crying out to God, to God to not reject him, to God to not give him an earthquake, to God to not cause him to drink the cup of judgment, the wine of judgment. And in all of this, what I'm suggesting to you is in sort of the mystery of life, we are learning still a complete dependence and a complete confidence in the Lord. In the mystery of these kinds of situations, in the mystery of the absolute mess of life, we're still invited to a great confidence in the Lord. So the despair in this situation really does lead to a confidence. Verse 4 says this, You've set up a banner for those who fear you. God's not left you. Verse 6, this is, this is pretty wild. Verse 6 really through, um, for, through 8 says this. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe over Philistia. He's saying, do you think that Judah, which is of course where Jerusalem is, is outside of my control and, and my power and my, and my ability? Do you think Edom and the Moabites and the Philistines can just do whatever they want? You're never safer than with me. You have complete confidence in the Lord. Listen to this, verses 9 through 12, they almost sort of summarize this whole situation. I want you to try to hear this again in light of this story. David, over near uh, the Euphrates River, out to the east of Israel, and, and the fortified city, the city of the Lord, Jerusalem, the city of David, right? Uh, the, the, the place where David ruled from and where he worshipped the Lord. It says this is being sacked. It says, verse 9, who will bring me to, a, to the fortified city? I need to get back. Who will lead me to Edom? He's seeing the Edomites coming at him and seeking to destroy the place that he loves when he's being taken on by someone else. 
And his question in that situation is, have you not rejected us, O God? How many of you have experienced that? God, where are you? Have you just not re- have you rejected? You do not go forth, O oh God, with our armies. Where are you? He says, O oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. And he ends with this, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And somehow, though David and his army is over in the Euphrates River, Joab and his men come over and the Edomites are taken care of, which is a situation you would never see happening. God comes through when you would never have expected it. And here's what I want to sort of end with. I would guess, because I know so many of you, that the images that we find of a despairing situation here in Psalm 60, they don't seem foreign to you. Because they're images that we are explicitly given of what Jesus goes through when he goes to the cross. I mean, explicitly so. Luke 22, listen to this. Verse 41 and 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Please don't let me drink this cup of judgment. Matthew 27, verses 51. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit, but 51 and 54, it says this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two right when Jesus was crucified from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Verse 54 says this, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this is the Son of God. Mark 15 Verse 33 and 34 says this, And when the sixth hour had come, this is Jesus on the cross, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear these are the exact same exact same images we are given of the situation of despair for David. Drinking the cup of the judgment of God. The earthquake. The rejection. Familial rejection. Jesus has experienced every single one of these things. Right there upon the cross. I'm going to say this. I, um, I do not know why the sorrow and despair and the situations that you've found yourself in this life can often be rightly said to be under the will of God, our Heavenly Father. I don't know why He numbers the hairs on our head. Uh, I don't know why He's orchestrated our life to peak physically at 25. Um, 
I don't, I don't, I don't understand so much of the despair that we, we, we find ourselves in this life or the reasons for it. Um, I do know, I do know that David's message to us again and again is that even when you're down and you're getting kicked and when, even when you see you receive one bill and then you receive the next and you receive the next and you feel completely overwhelmed, you can still have confidence in our Lord. You can still have confidence in our Lord that his ways are perfect. His love for you is perfect. He will hold you through it all. He will. Again and again, we are told this throughout Holy Scripture. We don't know why in God's perfect providence, David would be fighting one enemy on one side only to find that another comes at him from the other. We don't know. We do know, though, that what David says out of that situation is the Lord is faithful. And what we know from the cross is that when Jesus finds himself in the exact same situation, the Father is faithful. Satan, sin, and death cannot hold him down. The cross, which seemed as though it was you know, the victory of the world and sin and death and all of it, became its very destruction. Because that is not the end of the story. I know that it's often, it's often our thought that in our times of despair that we might run from God. But you all, so many of you know that it's often in actually those exact places where his strength is made perfect in our weakness. That his love is most clearly demonstrated in our times of despair. That he draws near to us in such a tangible, real way that we feel absolutely abandoned. This is a picture for us of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, it's also found in your life and in your death. Because it's when you die that you live. You find resurrection in the confidence of God through your despair. Okay, let me do this. Let me end very briefly, very briefly. With the ending of the story, the man is asleep. He's fallen asleep on the beach. And this is how this story ends that I read. When he woke up, the strangest thing appeared to him. And he wondered actually if it was a mirage, if it was fake. A few hundred yards away, there was a ship. A few hundred yards away from his beach where he had just fallen asleep in despair. There was a ship. And it was docked, and there were sailors moving back and forth. And eventually, actually, the captain himself of that boat comes and finds this man on the beach, approaches him, and he says this to the man. We saw your smoke signal, and so we came. And the very thing that caused his despair was his salvation. And that is the Christian story time and time and time again. 
because oddly enough, the Christian message of hope, the Christian symbol of hope, is a cross, an instrument of destruction. But it was in the place of despair that we actually found the love of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for Psalm 60. God, I don't know exactly who in this room right now is going through these kinds of experiences, but they're not lost on any of us in our lives. I pray that in the, in the moments when you seem very far off and when we're being kicked when we're already down and when life seems to have dealt us blow after blow, that we might cry out to you and remember that this was David's story and this is our Lord Jesus' story. And that we can still have confidence in you, Lord, that you will show up. You will make good on your promises to your people. That you will be, we will be our salvation. We thank you for the cross, a symbol of destruction that has become the symbol of life. The picture of despair that has become our salvation. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God, and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.